Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. So we saw... Peter interrupted Jesus' teaching on this, and he took matters into his own hands. And we witnessed Jesus rebuke Peter. Jesus lets him know that, along with the other, the other 11 who are watching, that Peter was unknowingly being used as a tool and a mouthpiece for Satan. Remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. So, a little sermon and a sermon here before we dive into the text. I think it's, it's important that we understand, and this brings us to key point number one, is that a rebuke is not rejection. It's correction. A rebuke is not rejection. It's correction. A rebuke is, is a warning. It's a very biblical thing to do with someone that you love. Jesus, he did a lot of rebuking and correcting, didn't he? The Apostle Paul, he writes to Pastor Tim in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. He says, Tim, you need to rebuke those, publicly rebuke those guys who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I say, oh, Dustin, I do not like that at all. The Apostle Paul, he teaches further on this subject, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So why is all this rebuking? Why is this correcting profitable? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So unfortunately in our culture, when someone gets rebuked in the church, they often leave the church and they perceive that rebuke as a rejection of them personally. It affects them, their personhood. We're going to see how Peter and the 12 not only respond to Jesus's rebuke here, but how they, they adapt to today's teaching on discipleship. So today's scripture passage really is a short sermon from Jesus. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus's sermon, it focuses on saving faith and also discipleship. And Jesus uses this concept of a suffering Messiah as a model for discipleship. And today, the Holy Spirit, he's going to teach us how a wrong view of Jesus leads to a wrong view of discipleship. What's, what is that view? And what's the correct view? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand with me as we read the Word of God. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and following. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel 
will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. These are the very words of God. Please pray with me. Father, the psalmist writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow your instructions have good insight. So, Lord God, we we pray that we make you smile by following your instructions today, that you would indeed teach us many things uh, that we need to hear, and that you will allow us the privilege to apply these things in our life as we uh, walk out this morning. We do pray for the Verde Valley. We do pray for those who desperately need to understand Jesus, who you are, and what you've come to do, and what you have done. So, Lord, as disciples now, I pray uh, that we're very aware, and we're listening on what you've called us to do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you, guys. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 34. Calling the crowd, along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So here's the big picture in verse 34. Remember the the movie, The Passion, with, with Mel Gibson? So the picture here is this. Imagine dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people being beaten and being scourged and being bloody And they're all following Jesus. So that's the mental image here. So with that context, verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd. He calls the crowd. Now, this is the first mention of this crowd in this narrative. The crowd, really, it shouldn't be a surprise to us because our gospel writer, Mark, here, um, he wants us to know that Jesus is not just speaking to the 12. He now is speaking to everyone around. Jesus and the twelve, they are still in Gentile territory. They are still in Caesarea Philippi. So these people are a mixed background, both racially, spiritually. And Jesus purposely calls the crowd. Those those of you on the sideline, come here. Those, Those of you on the fence, I need you to come here. I need you to hear this. I need you to hear this sermon. So Jesus is now going to define what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Everyone is invited to follow and to accept Jesus' conditions. Last week, Jesus spoke on the reality of salvation, and today Jesus is going to speak on the reality of discipleship. And he says, "If, if anyone wants to follow after me, notice that this is a conditional statement. So circle that word if in your Bible. It's a conditional statement. It's, it's a choice. If you choose to follow Jesus, these are the conditions from Jesus himself. 
We don't get to follow Jesus based on our own opinion. Just like an employee doesn't walk into a CEO's office and start bossing him around. If you want to stay employed, you got to follow what the CEO, the conditions that he has laid down for you, for your job description. So Jesus lays down three specific conditions here in verse 34. The first two are decisive acts, and the third is based on the relationship with Jesus. So the first decisive act here, he says, let him deny himself. I find it helpful to define what something means by first defining what it's not. So Jesus is not necessarily saying that you are to refrain from something. You're not just to refrain from overeating or pornography or drinking too much or rage or whatever your deal is. Not one or two things, not something maybe that you indulge in that satisfies you. I mean, that is a part of it. That is part of of denying yourself, especially if you're refraining from sin. But Jesus is giving us a much bigger picture here. Denying yourself does mean this. Key point number two. Denying yourself is an ongoing daily decision to abandon your natural sinful desire to make yourself the center of your universe. Denying yourself is an ongoing, it's a daily decision, sometimes hourly, to abandon your natural sinful desire to make yourself the center of your universe. So he doesn't ask the disciples to to specifically deny something themselves. He is asking them to deny themselves completely. All their ambitions. You see the difference there? Let's dig a little bit deeper. Denying yourself, it means to have no association with your old life. Your old ambitions, your dreams, those things are now dead. Why? Because your old life is dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Word of God says, If anyone is in Christ, he is now a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So if you have repented from your sin, if you have called on the name of Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you have a new life. God has given you a new heart. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And since you are a new creation, you no longer want to even associate with your old self. Jesus is telling us that we are to be completely disown who we used to be. We got to be willing to break off our former way of life completely. So denying yourself, it's the rejection that you are your own authority. Denying yourself, it's the refusal to allow your self-interest to guide you. Because once again, it's, it's the unholy trinity, right? It's me, myself, and I. All that you used to love in the world, that must now be rejected. And why is that? Scripture tells us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. That's big. Jesus is saying, guys, look, I am now the center of your life. 
The love of yourself and the love of the world has now been replaced with undivided love for Jesus Christ. How undivided, you ask? Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, the word of God says, this is Jesus, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus refuses to accept second place in anyone's life if you're a disciple. Jesus tells his disciples to follow the, way that, the ways that he has chosen for them, not the ways that we would choose for ourselves. So Jesus is saying, this is what I've created you guys for. It's a personal relationship with me so that you can fulfill my desires for you, my purposes, my plans, all, all of that for my kingdom. The second decisive act is taking up your cross in verse 34. So before, before the 12, before the crowd can swallow that bitter pill, Jesus continues. He says, you got to take up your cross. And the cross is the heart of the gospel. Bearing your cross, is, that's the central requirement of discipleship. Unfortunately, this phrase, bearing your cross, it's been cheapened by our culture. So let's again define what it's not before we get to what it is. Uh, saying things or hearing things like, well, you know, Dustin, my boss, my boss, that's my cross to bear. No, not really. That's how you make a living. The word of God says it doesn't matter what, you, what, what job you have. It is by the sweat of your brow that you will work. It's going to be hard. Things are going to be difficult. Uh, see Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Well, Dustin, you know, my marriage, my kids, my mouthy mother-in-law, they're all my crosses. Strike two. No, see, that's called relational strife. Brings us to key point number three. Relational strife is not a cross from God, but a test from God. Relational strife is not a cross from God, but a test from God. So think about this. God uses these people and these events in your life to show you how hard your heart is. God is showing you how unloving, how impatient you are when somebody pushes you to the very limit. Now, that may sound like bad news, guys, but it's not. That's very good news because God is fulfilling his amazing promises in you. He's using these people and these events by changing you, by sanctifying you through these, these conversations and these events. And the main purpose there is so that you will change and you'll start resembling and reflecting your Savior, Jesus Christ. Even an ongoing illness or some kind of handicap, that is not a cross. These are tragic things, there's no doubt, but it is not a cross. These things are the result of the fall. Once again, see Genesis chapter 3. As disciples, as believers, we know we live in a broken world. And really, we should expect these things in our life. We should not be surprised when things like these, this happens to us. 
Let's move on to what bearing your cross truly is. Key point number four for us. Bearing your cross, it does come from obeying the the commands of Scripture regardless of the cost. Bearing your cross comes from obeying the commands of Scripture regardless of the cost. So taking up your cross, it goes against everything that the world offers. Everything. Have you guys noticed that everything that the world is selling is nothing but a lie? And it's becoming more and more challenging to become uh, or to live with biblical integrity in our culture. So let me give you a couple practical, real-life examples that, that you can take away and apply these tomorrow. Let's say everyone at work is inflating their sales numbers, especially because it's the end of the month and you haven't made your, your quota, you haven't made your goal yet. But see, you're not going to do that because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Secondly, taking up your cross is, is treating people with dignity. Because every person is made in the image of God, and even though the boys at work are headed to the bar or the strip club on a Friday night, you're going to go home and choose to honor your wife. You're going to honor your children by going straight home, regardless of the mockery, regardless of of the scorn from others. You may even get passed up for a job promotion or a raise because you're, you're not one of them. Why? Because you're a disciple of Jesus. Taking up your cross, it means that you're going to embrace a lifestyle of servanthood when everybody else is clamoring for all this power. Taking up your cross means extending yourself in very difficult circumstances. For example, when you, when you hear someone that you know and that you love and they are just railing on God, they're railing on Jesus or the Bible, you have a choice to speak up, to speak up in love. Speaking up, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. We all know this. But we have so much to learn from the apostle Peter on this. I mean, even Peter, Jesus' right-hand man. Jesus said, Peter, Matthew 16, 18, he said, On this rock, on you, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to overpower it. Shortly after that, Peter denies who Jesus even is. Not once, not twice, but three times. Let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came over and said to him, Hey, you you were with Jesus. You're you're with that Galilean. Peter denied it in front of everybody. I, I don't know who, I don't know what you're talking about. Later outside the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around him, hey guys, this man right here, this is Je- he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, again, he denied it, this time with an oath. I, I don't even know the man. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter. You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. So Peter starts to cuss. A curse on me if I'm lying. I, look, guys, I don't know him. I don't know this man. Brings us to key point number five. Discipleship is not perfection, but it is an increasing obedience to God's word. Discipleship is not perfection. It is increasing obedience to God's word. 
Note here that bearing a cross, that's not a Jewish expression. The, the phrase or the concept that Jesus gives, it's not found in the Old Testament. It's not even found in Jewish literature either. Everyone listening to Jesus' sermon that day, they don't realize at this time that he's going to carry his own cross and that he's going to be crucified. Jesus has only told the disciples that he's going to die. He has not told them how. So when Jesus says that you got to take up a cross, the, the crowd probably, <gasps> they probably gasped. They, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about because the Romans were perfectors of pain. The Roman cross, it symbolizes all that pain. In the first century, it, it was not a symbol of salvation like it is today. It signified torture and shame and execution. The crucifixion, by the way, it was reserved for the worst of criminals. The Romans crucified people in public many times along the, the major walkways as a reminder of what happens when you start messing around with the Roman government. You don't defy Caesar's authority. The Romans crucified as many as 30,000 Jews during Jesus' lifetime. So they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to here. Key point number six. Discipleship means paying any price that Jesus chooses for you. Discipleship means paying any price that Jesus chooses for you. Back to verse 34 now. So calling the crowd along with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and now follow me. So we saw the two decisive acts from Jesus. We have to willfully, consciously decide now to deny myself and take up my own cross. And now Jesus says, now you have to follow me. Key point number seven Following Jesus is a relationship that is based on non-negotiable obedience. Following Jesus is a relationship based on non-negotiable obedience. So we as disciples, we don't get to define this relationship with Jesus. The Word of God says in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John chapter 15, verse 14, you are my friend if you do what I command you. Wow, so what's, what's the implication to all of that? That if I don't do those things, then I'm not a disciple. So key point number eight today, obedience is the litmus test for discipleship. Obedience to the word of God is the litmus test for discipleship. The Apostle John writes again in 1 John 2. By the way, the Apostle John, he's got a lot to say about this, if you haven't noticed. He was one of the... the Three for the inner circle. So he knows all about discipleship. First John chapter 2, verse 3, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims 
Well, look, guys, I know God, but he doesn't obey God's commandments. That person is a liar, and he's not living the truth. Wow, John, could you beat around the bush a little bit for us? Could you put some sugar on that, please? But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know that we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So in other words, disciples, they look like and they act like their disciple maker. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. So two things on verse 35 here. This life, it does refer to your physical body. It does also focus on your own personal safety, your success. It could also mean that this is the kind of life that you want to live on earth. All of your hopes, all of your dreams, right? The the American dream. Verse 35 is the reality of discipleship in one sentence. This is life's great paradox, You can write beside verse 35, just this is the beautiful disaster of Christian life. Key point number nine, the Christian life is a throwaway life. The Christian life is a throwaway life. So what's that mean? Every moment that we live without rejection and affliction and death, That's called God's grace. A life without suffering, it's not normal. It certainly is not biblical. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, I I once thought that these things, all of these worldly things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else. I've counted all this worldly stuff as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Back to verse 36 now. For what does it profit? What does it benefit to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? So Jesus is now asking a rhetorical question because Nobody can gain the whole world. Verse 36, it also means more than just dying. It means that you're going to lose your true life, your eternal life. Verse 37, Jesus goes on. He says, what can anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus is now giving us a lesson in spiritual economics. So there is a quick profit in gaining the whole world if you could do that. But if that profit happens at the cost of our own souls, well, obviously, there's, there's no profit at all. So ultimately, we are spiritually bankrupt. Have you ever considered how valuable your soul truly is? Have you ever thought about that? How valuable is your soul? Your soul is so valuable that Almighty God became a man for the sole purpose of dying to save your soul. 
The actual value of souls was demonstrated by how much Jesus was willing to pay on that cross. Pretty incredible. Verse 38, Jesus goes on now. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So key point number 10 is is we want to define this word ashamed in this context. This is the embarrassment. This is the remorse of following Jesus. So the person who will not accept the demands of discipleship, it proves that he is ashamed of Christ. Ashamed of what? Jesus said, of my words, the gospel message. Jesus goes on, he talks about this adulterous and sinful generation in verse 38. Adultery is a very personal and intimate sin. And Jesus is referring to the spiritual unfaithfulness of the Israelites here. The Old Testament paints an amazing picture. The prophet Hosea, chapter 2, verse 2. God is speaking through Hosea. He says, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove that promiscuous look from her face and her adultery between her breasts. Did you know that God divorced Israel? We see a hint of it here, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. We'll get to more of that in... In Mark chapter 10, back to verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, so that that term there, sinful generation, it covers more than adultery and unfaithfulness. It's a broader term. Jesus is defining for us what kind of people that he's talking to. He's referring to their moral state. He's calling them as he's talking to them wicked and godless people. And then he goes on, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the angels. So Jesus is coming back very soon. You guys can do better than that. I mean, come on. Thank you. Thank you. I know we're pretty reserved in here, but y'all can get excited about Jesus. I'm just saying. And when he comes back, he's going to come back with the glory of his father. He's coming back for his bride, his true church. That's you. He's coming back. All right. Come on now. I'm almost done. I've only got 147 more pages to go. I don't even know where I am anymore. (laughs) All right. He's coming back a second time to judge those who refused his grace the first time around. The word of God says that when Jesus comes back, his voice will sound like a trumpet. What's a trumpet sound like? Loud. That's right, Ben. It is loud. Jesus is going to be dressed in a white robe. He's He's going to have a white 
uh, excuse me, a gold sash wrapped around his chest. And his hair is going to be white as snow, his eyes like fire, his feet like bronze. A double-edged sword, not a single-edged sword. A double-edged sword is going to be coming out of his mouth. His face is going to be shining like the sun. He's going to be tatted up, and his robe is going to be dipped in blood. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 19. Now, let me ask you something. Does that sound like the Jesus that you know? Is that the sissified American version Jesus that we know? That the social prosperity guys, the social gospel, the prosperity gospel guys are, are peddling? No, see, Jesus, and, and not only that, he's going to be ushered in, Jesus says, by an army of angels. Angels emphasize the dignity and the power of when he returns, really his holiness here. So at the second coming, the Messiah will be ashamed of the disciples that are ashamed of him. And what this means is that there is a loss of rewards for the disciple at that point in heaven. And verse 1 of chapter 9, And then Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Okay, so this is one of the most puzzling verses in the Gospels. With these words, Jesus utters a prophecy with a deadline. And Jesus says that in this prophecy, what's going to happen in the lifetime of some of the disciples that are standing right there? This is going to happen with you guys. So notice here what Jesus did not say. He did not say that some standing here will not taste death until I return. He didn't say that. And it's really important to read this verse correctly because if we read it incorrectly, we're going to get confused and our theology starts to get all wonky on us because if we read into this verse, Jesus' second coming, then we've got a problem because if that's what Jesus meant, uh-oh, Jesus is a liar. Yeah, the second coming hasn't come yet and, and all those guys are dead. The best way to look at verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, is from the whole of Scripture here, because Scripture interprets Scripture. Starting in Genesis, Genesis 1, God, he uses time to reveal his truths. Jesus, he also taught this way in one of his parables. Remember in Mark chapter 4, he used the parable of a seed, how it grows into a stalk, and then the head, and then final finally, the, the full kernel of the head. So what we're seeing here is that the kingdom of God, it comes bit by bit. It is slowly revealed as a hidden mystery. So in other words, some of Jesus' disciples, they will see the fulfillment of this prophecy in stages. Jesus is not referring to a single event here, but a series of events. Well, think about what's getting ready to happen as we, as we go through Mark. There are six significant events here that all happen in the lifetime of the disciples. So next week, we got Jesus' transfiguration. That happens six days later. That's pretty significant. We've got Jesus' death. That's a big deal. We got his resurrection. 
the ascension, we've got Pentecost, we've got the destruction of the temple. And in each one of these events, the kingdom of God and his power are undeniable. So let me give you a picture here of seven characteristics of who Jesus says a disciple is. So, number one, a disciple is a follower. A disciple is a follower. He walks the same road that Jesus walks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. This is Peter writing this now. For you were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Are you a follower of Jesus? Number two, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner. It's someone who has a growing hunger to learn the word of God and to apply it to your life. Psalm 119, 140 Your word is completely pure, and your servant loves it. Disciple loves the word of God. Are you a learner of the word of God? Disciple number three embraces discipline. A disciple embraces discipline. The word of God says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time. Boy, is that an understatement. But painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by discipline. A disciple embraces discipline. Do you embrace discipline? Number four, a disciple is involved in community. Disciple is involved in community. Disciples of Jesus do not operate in isolation. You know, there are no loners in the kingdom of God. The entire Bible really proves this point from Genesis 2.18, where we learn that it is not good for man to be alone. We fast forward where God saves the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, the whole nation. Uh, We fast forward to Jesus being surrounded by the 12, to the fast forward to the book of Acts. I mean, God designed you to be in community because he himself, think about this, he himself is always in community. The very nature of Almighty God inside the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. They're always in community. They're they're always in unity. What a blessing that is. And so are we, right? So are you involved in community? Are, are Are you committed to God's community? Number five and six, a disciple denies himself and a disciple bears his cross. So we spent the last 40 minutes talking about that. So how are you doing with, with those two things? How are you, how you doing with denying yourself and, and bearing your cross? Number seven, a disciple is a disciple maker. A disciple is a disciple maker. This is the great commission that the Lord Jesus has given to every church. 
And there is no greater joy than to share Jesus with someone to train them in the word of God. And look, guys, don't overthink this. This can just, it's not like a formal thing. You can just go and have coffee with someone and share the word of God. Because the problem is we start to learn this stuff and all of a sudden our, our head gets big and then it starts to get heavy, right? And we can't hold it up. And the, and the way to release that is to pour your life into someone else. So those are the seven things of a disciple. This is the reality of discipleship. It's a heavy lesson, isn't it? Well, Dustin, you know, this is why I come to River Bible Church. You just give us this incredible uplifting message and we walk out of here. My prayer is that you would do some business with God to see if you're a disciple. Look, guys, there's nothing more important. And if you do have questions on this, we have a, a prayer room through the, through the foyer there to the right, and we would love to pray with you and, uh, and answer any questions that you may have. So, Father in heaven, what a joy it is. It really is to, to open up your words and see where we are. If we consider ourselves, well, maybe I consider myself a disciple, but I'm not doing some of these things. So, Lord, we're listening. Make us better listeners. Allow us to get our, our eyes off ourselves and, and on what you are doing around us. Let us see those who are hurting and who desperately need to hear this message of the good news. Continue to, to make us and press into us, Lord. The one thing that you're really getting at from this lesson, the cost, the reality it's an amazing journey. It really is, Lord God. This, this truly is a beautiful disaster, and you have modeled it for us. Nobody makes this stuff up. Nobody makes up the fact that you step down off your throne in heaven to become your own creation for the sole purpose of dying for our sins so that we can have a relationship with you. So, Lord, we want to praise you, and we want to thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.